Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Heather, and I want... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com slash tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much. And now to the show. Welcome to episode 38 of the Renaissance English History Podcast, Portraits and Propaganda in Tudor England. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe that it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and to being more in touch with our own humanity. So I've got a few things to talk about with you this week before we get started. First, a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode on the Tudor Navy. And I totally meant to give a shout out to the Maritime History Podcast, and I totally forgot. It was probably some kind of Thanksgiving turkey tryptophan thing happening. So please, if ships are interesting to you, if maritime history is interesting to you, go to iTunes and check it out. It's a great podcast. But don't check it out before you listen to this podcast. Like, check it out in half an hour when this podcast is over, okay? Okay, cool. 
Second, this is very exciting. I'm working on a book interviewing some of my favorite indie history podcasters about their time periods, their subjects, and kind of what got them into podcasting as well. So by indie, I mean people like me who are doing this as a labor of love in their living room while their kids are napping without the financial support and infrastructure of a radio program or university. So you can help me with this. I'm hoping to have it out by mid-March. So when it comes out as an ebook, you can totally buy it. But before then, if there's a great history podcaster you know and love who I should be looking into, please let me know via Twitter at Tesco or on Facebook on the podcast page. So I've been going through the different lists on iTunes and obviously the people I listen to, but I'm sure there are some wonderful gems that I'm missing out on. And so far, I've got a really great group lined up that represents a lot of different periods and places. So I'm really excited to have this finished product, and I think it's going to be a really interesting read and a great introduction to new periods in history that we might not be familiar with. So finally, as always, last little bit of admin here. (laughs) If you like this podcast, please rate it in whatever service you use to listen to it, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or something else. It helps other people to find the podcast and to decide if it's something that they want to listen to. And don't forget that there are show notes available for each episode now at englandcast.com. As always, you can text or leave a message on the listener feedback line, which is 801-6-TESCO or 801-683-9756. And you can leave me feedback, show ideas, happy new year thoughts, things like that. So on to the story. Finally, right? Thanks for bearing with me through all that. This week, I'm going to talk about art, visual art. I did an episode a few years ago about visual arts in Renaissance England, but I really want to do more with it. So I'm tracking down some experts to interview, getting that lined up. But in the meantime, I want to explore my own personal interest, which is the almost modern use of visual arts to forward a particular message about the Tudors, i.e. propaganda. What I'm going to do in this episode is look at a couple very famous Tudor portraits and look at the background behind each of them, what they were saying about the subject, why they're important, things like that. So you're probably going to want to check out the show notes to see the actual images themselves, unless you just know them off the top of your head. They are pretty famous. Um, So if you know this time period, you might. But yeah, check out the show notes for the actual image. And I've put some videos about the different paintings and things like that up there as well. So the first one I want to look at is the famous 1537 portrait of Henry VIII was part of the Whitehall mural by Hans Holbein. And it shows Henry VIII with his family, with his wife, Jane Seymour, his parents, Henry VII, and Elizabeth of York. So what was happening in 1537 when this was commissioned? The year before, 1536, Henry had dispensed with Anne Boleyn, executing her on trumped-up charges of adultery and witchcraft. The pilgrimage of grace had threatened the stability of northern England, This was when tens of thousands of people protested the king's separation from Rome and the dismantling of the monasteries. And in early 1536, before Anne had died, Henry suffered from a horrible jousting accident that would forever leave him injured, and it surely had him scared and thinking about his own mortality. He still had no male heir. He'd been on the throne for over 25 years. So things were looking kind of sketchy for Henry. 
Even worse, the standard attitude towards a woman's adultery in Renaissance England was that the husband must not have been able to keep his wife happy, which is why she had to go elsewhere. So adultery on the part of a woman was almost as embarrassing for the husband as it would have been horrible for the wife to be found out. And so here's Henry with his reign threatened, his wife executed on these charges of adultery, perhaps jokes going on about his manliness, his leg still sore and no male heir, right? It wasn't like a great time for him. He was just finishing up the building of Whitehall Palace, which was along the river stretching from Charing Cross to Westminster. And Holbein was commissioned to create this mural that would decorate the privy chamber. It was a life-size painting. It measured three meters by four. That's like nine feet by 12 feet or so. And it was a huge painting that was just going to dominate the chamber. It would include Henry and his parents, his current queen, all standing around this piece of marble that was inscribed with a message about the Tudor dynasty. There, front and center, was a life-size portrait of Henry looking directly at the viewer in all his glory, designed to create awe in anyone who came close to it. There were jewels in his furs and his cap, luxurious clothing showing how wealthy he was. And then there was the codpiece. This is the pose that we will forever associate with Henry. It has the wide stance, his feet apart, his hands on his hips. He's looking directly at us. He's daring us to question his supremacy with his codpiece front and center, showing us what a man he is. Any woman who would go elsewhere had to be crazy. It screamed at us. Basically, the whole portrait was designed to have us see what a man he was. This was the first time a portrait had been used in this way. And people were literally struck dumb when they encountered it. There's stories of servants and and people going in and literally falling to their knees thinking it was the king. People almost fainting. Workers were caught off guard. Yeah, any nobles who came into the privy chamber, nobles who might be tempted to plot and rebel against the Tudors, who might still consider them Welsh upstarts even 50 years after Bosworth Field, they were going to think twice about taking any rebellious actions when they saw the might and the strength of their king like this. The pose of the portrait itself was considered vulgar in the courts of Europe. Apparently, it was also really bad form to depict a royal's full face looking right at you. And in Holbein's original, Henry appeared three-quarter face. The change was probably something that the king himself asked for. Carl van Mander, writing in the early 17th century, commented that Henry, quote, stood there majestic in his splendor. He was so lifelike that the spectator felt abashed, annihilated in his presence. And of course, the truth was, Henry was 45. He was on the brink of being old. The athletic youth who had done all this tilt yard jousting, who was the knight in shining armor, he was gone. His legs were causing him all of this pain, and he would soon be almost an invalid. Yeah, it just wasn't a really good time. (laughs) He was also really insecure at that time. You know, people really were questioning the Tudor dynasty. He still didn't have this male heir, like I said. So that wasn't the message that Henry wanted to give. He wanted to give this message of strength. And like I said, this was really the first time in painting in England and even in Europe that that a painting was used to 
portray this message so clearly. It was really a remarkable thing at the time. So next up, the next painting I'm going to look at is The Family of Henry VIII. This is the lovely portrait from 1545. It shows Henry with his son Edward, his favorite wife, Jean Seymour, and his two daughters on either side, kind of off in the distance. And then even more in the background, there's these two mysterious figures, and they are in fact Will Summers, Henry VIII's fool, and Jane the Fool, who was fool to Anne Boleyn, Mary Tudor, and Catherine Parr. They're in the background outside the archways that look out over London, showing the King's Garden, outlined in the Tudor colors of green and white, showing the scenery of London with parts of Westminster Abbey and the King's great tennis court just barely visible. The artist is officially unknown, though there's a strong influence of Holbein, and the painting was originally displayed in the presence chamber at Whitehall Palace, so another painting that would have been right there in your face at Whitehall. So what was happening in this time that would have influenced the painting? Well, for one, Jane Seymour had been dead for years, and Henry was on his last wife, the third wife after Jane, sixth wife total, Catherine Parr. But let's look at what else was going on. To start with, he was, he was getting really old. He was really miserable. His leg was still sore. There are stories of how Catherine had the unenviable job of having to be his nursemaid and take care of this open wound and the infected wound that was on his leg. We can really only imagine how uncomfortable this would have been for him. There's none of this evidenced in the painting, though. Just nice, elegant, shapely legs outlined in white hose. In 1545, Henry's kingdom was threatened again when the French sent an armada that was actually larger than the Spanish armada would be a generation later. So the French sent 30,000 soldiers in more than 200 ships. Henry was constantly on the defensive after his break with Rome and dissolving all of the monasteries. The good Catholic rulers of Europe saw an opportunity to get on the Pope's good side and perhaps enjoy some extra purgatory kudos and gain some land and prestige in the process. And England was constantly on the lookout for these invading forces. If you haven't yet listened to my episode on Henry's Navy from a few weeks ago, you can get more detail on the defensive buildup during this time in that show. It was during the battle with the French Armada that Henry lost one of his earliest and favorite warships, the Mary Rose. So here's Henry. He's old. His son is still a child. He's obese. He has a leg injury that leaks pus. His empire is under constant threat, and he just lost a favorite ship. But that's not what he wants to show people who've entered the presence chamber. He wants to show that the succession is assured. He wants to show his son strong and robust like his father, when in fact Edward would, of course, die a teenager. He wants to show his daughters as part of the line of succession in case something did happen to his son. He wants to show a happy family with luxurious surroundings, never mind the fact that the queen had been dead for almost a decade at that point. Yes, he says, I may have dissolved the monasteries and you might not like that, but just look at how wealthy I am now. Look at the tapestries on the wall, the carvings, the rug on which I put my kingly feet. Look at the jewels. I can have jewels like in my hat. Like it's so not a big, big deal to me. I have jewels like everywhere, right? Like my coat, my hat, my shoes. There's just jewels all over. And of course, my, my codpiece. Look and weep. 
because I am mighty King Henry. You think you can invade my country? I stood up to the Pope, to everlasting damnation, to God himself, thank you very much. I have no time for your hollow threats and your plotting and your intrigue. Just look at this dynasty. Look at how secure we are. We don't give a damn about it. We have tennis courts and shapely legs. <laughs> Indeed, this portrait of the family makes everything look so hunky-dory that you would have no idea just what a crappy time it was for Henry, which is, of course, how he would have wanted it. Now let's move on from Henry and his gross leg wound, shall we? Onwards to Elizabeth, who is, in so many respects, her father's daughter, and she could have taught a thing or two to the branding experts on Madison Avenue. There's so many portraits of Queen Elizabeth. One thing that differentiated her from other monarchs of this time is that she actually never granted the exclusive right to paint her image to any one person. And so there are paintings of her from many different artists. She did, however, keep close control over what the images were of her that were released and as such, the imagery and messages in her portraits helped build up this famous cult of Gloriana that we still associate with her. So the painters actually worked from face patterns. She would sit for one artist, and then they would use that painting to make patterns and copies so that other artists could do their portraits of her as well. I could do like a year's worth of podcasts just on the portraits of Elizabeth, and sadly, I don't have time to go into them all here. There are some really great websites that do go into all of the different portraits. So if you're interested in that, check out the show notes. I link to them and have a look at it. But sadly, we just don't, we'd be here like all day and all night. And eventually you would get so sick of hearing me talk. And I'd probably lose my voice. And it would just get really boring. But we're going to look at three. One as princess and two as queen. And we're going to look at the messages that were being sent to her court, her subjects, and to history. First off, why so many portraits of Elizabeth? While the portraits were commissioned by the government as gifts to foreign monarchs and to show to prospective suitors, and because Elizabeth stretched out marriage negotiations for so long, before, of course, she never got married at all, there was a lot of buzz early on with these portraits that were being sent to various monarchs throughout Europe who were considering marrying her. Courtiers also commissioned paintings to demonstrate their devotion to the queen. So those long galleries in country homes like Hardwick Hall that I've spoken about in the story about Bess of Hardwick, those long country homes with the galleries would have been filled with portraits of monarchs and nobility to show how loyal they were to each other and to their monarch. So there's a really famous portrait of Elizabeth as princess. It's one of the earliest portraits of Elizabeth painted when she would have been about 13 years old, and it's often used in book covers about her. It's attributed to William Scrotes, an artist from the Netherlands who painted for Henry VIII after about 1545 or so. And Henry probably commissioned the portrait. It was first recorded in an inventory for her half-brother Edward VI, where it's described as, quote, the picture of the Lady Elizabeth, her grace, with a book in her hand and a gown like crimson cloth. In the pose, she looks really demure, really pious, there's two books in the background. Well, she's holding one, and then there's one in the background, which shows her to be really educated, really studious. 
The smaller book probably represents the New Testament, the larger book, the Old Testament. And this is going to be one of the simplest portraits we see of her. It's contrasted to the theater and the pageantry of the later portraits. The early portraits as queen as well kept this feeling of serious, pious devotion. And let's look at that. It's really no surprise, considering many in Europe, most of the European monarchs still saw Elizabeth as illegitimate. She was born when Catherine of Aragon was still alive. She was born to Anne Boleyn when Catherine of Aragon was still alive. Catherine hadn't died yet. So because they didn't recognize the divorce from Catherine of Aragon, that meant that Elizabeth would have been a product of either an affair or bigamy. And so she wasn't legitimate. And a lot of Catholics, even in England, thought she wasn't legitimate as well. And she had yet to prove herself on the world stage. She was still finding her feet as the monarch. So she wanted to portray this really kind of demure, respectful sort of attitude, showing that she was really taking it serious and she could be trusted with the monarchy and she was going to serve her people. The first portrait of her in her coronation robes as well is actually modeled after a similar portrait of Richard II. That's actually only the second portrait of an English monarch that we have. She's sitting holding her scepter with her golden red hair flowing down around her back. She's covered with these jeweled robes. She looks very, very serious Uh, and very regal, not at all like an illegitimate princess who would be excommunicated by the Pope just over a decade later. So these early portraits of her, yeah, they really keep this kind of attitude of pious intellectualness, really taking it seriously. And then as time went on, Elizabeth found her feet as a monarch, and she surrounded herself with her able advisors, and she brought some stability to England after the previous decade well, decade with two monarchs, and even before then, things were really wonky with Henry and his love life. So she really brought some stability to England, and the portraits of her became much more theatrical. They used allegory to tell the story of her succession and the Tudor dynasty, which was now so firmly entrenched. One of these portraits actually has two versions. It's called The Family of Henry VIII, an Allegory of Tudor Succession, And it will be recognizable to those of you who are on the mailing list and had the advent calendar in December as one of the versions was the image that I used. Obviously, the portrait isn't an actual statement of fact. It can't be. Henry, Mary, and Edward are all pictured, as is a grown Elizabeth, which would have been a physical impossibility, as they would have all been dead by the time she was this old. But it tells the story of Henry VIII passing the throne on to the Protestant Edward, and showing by his look and his turn of the hand towards Elizabeth, who would carry on the Protestant Reformation of England, that she was the true heir. Mary and her husband, Philip II of Spain, are pictured on Henry's right side, along with Mars, the god of war. And this is a really powerful statement about how Elizabeth saw her family and also how she wanted to be seen. So she's on the right, on on the right side, Henry's left side, she's holding the hand of peace, who is stomping on a sword, and is followed by plenty, holding a cornucopia. Henry sits on the throne, he's passing the sword of justice to Edward, and then Mary and Philip are on the other side, kind of distant, both painted in darker colors. Elizabeth and Henry and Edward are all painted in these bright colors, these whites and silvers and gold colors, 
And of course, it you know can represent that they stand in the light of truth and that Elizabeth coming in is, is the final heir and is the one who's going to bring all of the things her father created to fruition and, and bring stability to the dynasty. So it's a really interesting one. The painting was first commissioned around 1572. This is when Elizabeth was beginning to see herself as the culmination of the Tudor dynasty. It was a gift to her advisor, Francis Walsingham. We know about Walsingham from an episode I did back over the summer. 1572 was when the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of Protestants happened in France. It was a horrible episode. Walsingham himself witnessed it and survived it. This may have been a gift to him to remind him of the rightness of the Protestant cause. It was repainted a decade and a half later after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And in the two portraits, everything looks pretty much the same except Elizabeth has an updated dress and she looks a little bit older. The second commissioning may have been done to celebrate the victory over the Spanish Armada. So let's talk about the Armada, huh? One of the most iconic portraits of Elizabeth as queen is the famous Armada portrait, painted in 1588 after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. It shows Elizabeth surrounded by the symbols of imperialism against a backdrop showing the defeat of this mighty navy. It's life-sized. It would have been awe-inspiring, just like Henry's portraits. These are portraits that are designed to convey power and status and, and really show off, you know, say, I'm like really a badass, right? Like, I just beat the Spanish Armada, you know, like, woohoo, go me. Like that's what they're really designed for, to say you've got a queen who is such a badass that she beat this armada. It's really cool, right? So the background shows the two different stages in the defeat. First, when the English fire ships drifted into the Spanish area and, and threatened their ships. And second, when the Spanish ships are driven into the coast when the, the winds, the Protestant winds, were threatening them. Some also say that this shows Elizabeth turning her back on the darkness while the sun shines in the direction of her gaze. Her hand rests on the globe. Her fingers are spread over the Americas, over Brazil, over South America, which had been dominated by the Spanish and the Portuguese, of course. And this shows the plans for imperialist expansion and exploration into the Americas. Of course, this was right at the time when the early colonies were being formed in the Americas to Roanoke and, and the early exploration. So Elizabeth's saying, yeah, you know, I beat the Spanish Armada in my home turf, and now I'm going over to the Americas too, so watch out, right? So really sending a powerful message with that. Art historians have talked about the geometry of the painting and talked about how amazing that is. It has these repeating patterns of circles and arches in the crown, the globe, the sleeves, and the ruff. Um, they also contrast the imperial figure of the Virgin Queen wearing the large pearl, which of course always symbolizes chastity. She's often wearing pearls in her portraits because it shows chastity. And uh, interestingly, there's also a mermaid carved on the chair of state, and mermaids represented female wiles, which would lure sailors into their doom. So there was a lot of messaging going on in this painting. And of course, these are things that 
I don't know necessarily that the average person would have been able to understand these, these sort of messages, but she wasn't necessarily painting them for the average person. She was painting them for her nobles, for the courtiers who were going to see them. The average person wasn't going to see these paintings. These paintings were going to be seen by nobles, by other heads of states and ambassadors, people who would have had an education that was grounded in sort of Greek mythology and allegory and would have understood what a lot of these messages were saying. There's a lot going on in that portrait. There are three surviving versions of the portrait. There's one at Woburn Abbey, one in the National Portrait Gallery in London, and there's also a version owned by the Drake family, which may have been commissioned by Sir Francis Drake, and it was first recorded in 1775. And scholars agree that that version is by someone different. The first two had been attributed to Elizabeth's sergeant painter, George Gower, but curators at the National Portrait Gallery now believe that all three versions were created in separate workshops and assign it to, quote, an unknown English artist. So a lot of paintings here, guys. Go to the website, check them out, look at them, and tell me what you think about them. Try to imagine that you are an ambassador. You've been sent to this outpost, England, on behalf of somebody, maybe somebody German or Flemish, and you show up in the presence chamber, in the privy chamber, and you're faced with these life-size portraits with these colors that are so new and so vibrant. These things are really fresh, you know, these kinds of messages. People didn't have Instagram where they were constantly looking at gorgeous images and Pinterest and things like that. You know, this is really a unique experience to be able to, to see a monarch represented like this with these gorgeous colors, these amazing kind of representations and, and messages. Yeah, it just, I think it would have really blown people away and really shown them the power of the monarch. But I'm interested in what you think too. So check them out in the show notes and let me know. You can tweet me at Tesco and you can send me a message on the Facebook page too, which is facebook.com slash Englandcast. So I don't have a book recommendation for this episode, but I have something even better. I'm giving away a Tudor book bundle of five really great books, some of which have been recommended on shows in the past. And I'm doing this just to celebrate the new year, right? So check it out and enter to win on the website at englandcast.com. On the website on englandcast.com, you can also sign up for my newsletter. And the people who subscribe to the newsletter just got a little mini cast yesterday on a woman called Mary Fitton, who lived a very colorful life and uh, defied convention as it were. So if you want to sign up to receive extra little exclusive mini casts and news and book giveaways, things like that, sign up for the newsletter, englandcast.com. Looking ahead, the two episodes in January are both going to be all about the Armada. It's Armada time, you guys. We have hit it. We have gotten there. We kind of got sidetracked with a little bit of medieval stuff a year or so ago, two years ago. I kind of got on this Margaret Beaufort kick. We, we, got, we did some of that. Now we are moving on. We are getting to the Armada by popular request. I've gotten these emails. 
please talk about the Armada. Get to the Armada. For the love of God, Heather, stop talking about medievalism, please. So we're there. Both episodes in January are going to be about the Armada. The first episode is going to be the foreign policy that led to this standoff with Spain, all about kind of what was going on after Mary died between Elizabeth and Philip and everything that was happening with that, how we got to the place of the Armada. And then the second episode will be the battle itself, the Spanish or the fire ships and all of that. And actually going to go to Cadiz. I've been there once. It's about two hours from my house here in Southern Spain. And so I'm going to go to Cadiz. Cadiz is famous because Sir Francis Drake did a raid of Cadiz like the year or so before the Armada itself. And it was so embarrassing, right? He shows up into this port in Spain along the Atlantic Ocean and he just ruins a whole bunch of ships and he gets away. It was like so awesome if you were Francis Drake. If you were Spain, it wasn't so awesome. But I'm going to go there and take some pictures. I'll put them up on the website. So yeah, January is Armada Month. Okay. I'm like way too excited about that. I'm so sorry. Okay. Happy New Year, you guys. I'm going to stop talking. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon. Bye. Blow, northern wind, a sandful baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbricht, that soul is Samley's on sea. Menschful meiden of nicht fair and freight of In all this war for me to one bur blood and a bon never yet in Ustanon, not so many in London.